I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think is, I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And it, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume, I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Cause see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap, like, you know, back in the day, like you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. Welcome back to Polymathic Audio. We have a special guest with us today coming by way of Netflix. Uh, Kyle Alex Brett is one of my favorite lawyers to follow on Twitter. He currently serves as the counsel to their independent films. Um, he's a fascinating follow. He really gets into the sociology and the history of film. Um, and I'm really excited to have him on board with us today. Yo, Webb, thank you for having me. This is super dope and looking forward to see what the hell we talk about. <laughs> All right, Kyle. So listen, man, I want to get into how you got to this point in your career. I think I remember the day that you announced that you were moving to Netflix. I know how big of a deal it was for you because you spent a lot of your, a lot of your time on Twitter talking about the art of film. Yeah. You dug into details, the symbolism, yeah. the creativity, all, all of that. I want to talk about like what you did to get to this point. Yeah. Take us from the beginning. Okay. So the beginning is I graduated from Howard Law School, came out in 14, uh, was a M&A lawyer for like three years, completely hated my life and was like, I can no longer do this. Um, and then, you know, I just was trying to find like what really fascinated me and like what was something that I like, you know, what found inexhaustible. And that was film, that was entertainment. So I found my way <clears throat> into a boutique entertainment law firm in uh, New York. Then I went to another one and then I was like, you know, you know, someone someone told me a long time ago, if you want to get into the car industry, you go to Detroit. If you want to get into oil, you have to go to Texas. And if you want to get into, you know, the, the Hollywood industry, it, it, it might make sense to make at least a pit stop over in L.A. So I was like, I need to get out into L.A. Uh, I had been doing the Twitter thing for a while. And I think my interest in film and, you know, trying to build a following on Twitter just kind of tipped people off that like, okay, this kid is not just saying he wants to get into film. This kid is not just like, you know, talking about it. He like actually really has a passion for it. And I think just, you know, putting the feelers out there, uh, my colleague now, you know, who was at, uh, who was on the Netflix independent film team and who had been a, a somewhat of a social colleague just knew that I was always talking about movies, film, law, the intersection of both. And he was like, hey, I think you would be a really dope addition to the team. Um, would you like to send over your resume? And I was like, yes, the hell I would. And so I sent it over to him. And then, you know, I've been I've been here over a little bit over a year now. And it's it's been pretty good for sure. So what does your day to day look like working for Netflix? Yeah. So, I mean, it it I, I, I hate giving lawyer answers but it truly does depend. And, you know, it's, it's depends upon. So the way that the way that independent film groups is works is that, you know, it's under, under a certain budget level is considered independent film. And just a quick story that 
the the cap on our group is is truly not quote unquote independent film. Like our cap is something like forty million. So anything outside of forty million will go to our original uh, uh, studio films. So like the big extraction, any of those huge Netflix films, any of the Will Smith films, any of those huge huge hundred million dollar films, those are going to go to what's called our original uh, studio film group. Anything under forty million which is still in the independent film world. If you told me someone made a film for $35 million, I would say that is not an independent film. By way of context, uh, Barry Jenkins's Moonlight was made for $2 million. So you're talking 30, a film for $30 million. Like that is such, such a big um, uh, scope and budget for a movie, but that is our cap. And so any films, so there's, we have a lot of different groups inside of original independent film. So we have family films, we have what's called light indies, which is even smaller, a smaller budget. And, you know, there's various stages of any any independent film. It can be in development, it can be in production, or it can just be an acquisition, something we're just, that's an already made film and we're acquiring it. So long-winded way to say, depending upon, you know, which type of film I'm working in, if I'm working on a, a film that's in development, I could be doing all sorts of agreement all day long, or if I'm working in something on production, which has, you know, this film is ready to shoot now, it's going to be, you know, so much uh, higher, higher paced and more intensity. So it, it really does depend upon like, which, like what my particular slate of films is, you know what I mean? Yeah. So give me, I don't want to ask for your top five independent films, because I know you don't want to be partial like that, but give me five examples of Netflix's independent films that fell beneath your cap? Uh, so there's a film called His House, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, I don't know if you saw Atlantics. That's another one that is Netflix. That falls, that fall, that would have fallen, that would have fallen in our cap. Uh, and then Mudbound is is of course another one. And that would have that would have fallen in our in our realm. Um, and there's a few more that are coming out that I think are, are pretty exciting, but I would say for sure his house. I mean, I can talk about that film all day long. Okay. So tell, take me through the process by which they would initiate your help to work through the production and or marketing and launch of his house. Yeah. So his house is one where, you know, you would have had, um, that was an acquisition. And that's like, you know, the film is already done. The film may be financed by someone else. And then prior to it going to a film festival, we're acquiring it. Um, so that's that's kind of, you know, that's that's not certainly not easy. That involves very complicated license agreements. But in terms of, you know, the types of agreements that need to go into that, that is just like a one, uh, just one agreement, which would be a license agreement and certain um, ancillary agreements to that license agreement. Something more complicated, right, would be if we were if we were working on something in development, which is to say, this is a good idea. Maybe we don't have a script that's written. Maybe we don't have the director attached to it. Maybe we don't have the producers who are going to help us make the film. Um, but the film is like actually really far out, and all the pieces aren't there. So we need to put all these agreements together 
that help build uh, that as a package. Something in production is, you know, a producer such as a macro coming to us and saying, here are all the pieces for this film. Here's the script. Here's, we already have a relationship with the leads, you know, the lead actors. We already know pretty much what director we're going to go with. We know all of these pieces. Now we're just kind of looking for financing and someone to really run the show, so to say. And, you know, uh, then we're, we're like super, super close to actual principal photography. And so that's a, that's a, that's a different suite of agreements, but that are just more time intensive. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So at the core of it, your M&A background has transferred pretty reasonably to your new career. Yeah. And I would, I would also say like one of the things that, you know, I'm really thankful. I worked at a firm called Simpson Thatcher. And one of the things that I'm really thankful is not just the substantive, you know, things that I learned about M&A, but just like the, the education you get in being a lawyer. I really do believe, you know, attention to detail, making sure there's no typos, all of that stuff, like, you know, that, that kind of anal retentive, obsessive, like every single letter needs to be in the right place. That is something that I think big law in general just teaches you really, really well. Uh, well. And it's like, you know, one of, one, of the more memor- one of the more memorable quotes in my big law time was this partner who, you know, it's probably toxic by 2020 terms, but he, his favorite saying was, you know, if I send you an email, your response is already late. And it was just like, you know, that, that was the kind of like, you know, making sure you're, you're being prompt, obviously within reason, obviously that feels a bit outdated, but it's like, you know, going through your emails and making sure you're responding to people, making sure you follow up, touching base with people, communicating with people, you know, what the status of something is, that kind of just and non-substantive training, but super, super critical training, like perfectly translates to the type of, to, to the type of environment I'm, I'm in now, for sure. Interesting. That's really fascinating. So <clears throat> you mentioned a slate of films that you've appreciated. I want to actually talk about one that I'm assuming falls under independent films. I could be wrong. Um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Like how, tell me where that, where that is classified in the Netflix ecosystem. So that, that's a bigger film. But, and again, this is why that line is so fluid because regardless of what the budget is on that one, that one is, you know, Denzel Washington's the producer, and you know he's such a he's such a, an A list relationship. Oftentimes, it is like if it's a if it's a super 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 high profile relationship, um, then they're going to go to OSF. Not and and not for any reason in particular, but just you know OSF has everything at its disposal. You know what I mean, like they are not confined by anything. So, you know, anything, if, if it's a super, super high profile person, such as the Denzel Washington, he's going to fall under OSF. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, so what's next? Uh, obviously you're going to be interested in the, in the, um, the reception of the film yeah. because it's such an important movie. Um, what were your thoughts on it? First and foremost, what do, what do you expect it to accomplish critically uh, for the organization? 
Okay, one, I think that, you know, the film was incredible. I think it was like, you know, it, it, I, I, I keep telling people like it had this really intense, uh, it made me like very claustrophobic, you know, it, it and I think it, it translates from the play to uh, film really well because, you know, there's not a lot of exterior scenes, you know, there's a scene with Ma driving and there's an earlier scene with her in the woods, but it, it mainly takes place in one building on two different levels. And, you know, so I thought that the George Wolf, the director, he was able to like really capture this claustrophobic, um, this claustrophobic environment that I thought not only was probably true for the actual stage production, but was actually true from the character's interior. You know what I mean? Like they were claustrophobic themselves. They, they, especially Chadwick's character, you know, he felt so stuck and so um, restricted, not only by Ma, not only by Cutler played by the fantastic Coleman Domingo, but he felt just, he felt very restricted and stuck in his own life. And that to me is like, what makes the it's like this this pressure cooker you know and i think that's a that's something that i i've seen in a lot of people's lives i felt in my life at time where you know there's you you have so much in you and you know the, the the movie opens with him desperately wanting his song to be used his version of my song to be used because he knows that if he can just get this song his version used then he can bust out he can break out and then his life will be better. And so I think the film really, like, especially for Black men, it shows, like, you know, how claustrophobic you can feel. And the desire for success is seen as, like, this valve release almost. And so I just thought it was, you know, that, that, that's my opening thought on it. But I thought the film was brilliant, honestly. That's very fascinating that you mentioned that about... Um chad's character levy right um he's somewhat vindicated at the end right yeah um yeah so historically obviously ma rainey is the 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 matriarch of the blues yeah but but historically she didn't get quite nearly the credit that bessie smith received right um maybe some of that was lack of crossover appeal I don't want to speak too much to that because I'm not a music historian, but um, it was really interesting to see Levy's character at the end, obviously for reasons that I will not share, but <laughs> given given that he handed over the rights to music um, and that music was produced, what I assume to be for the masses, yeah. p- perhaps he he could have helped her to cross over appeal that was probably elusive for her. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I think you're exactly right, Webb. And I think that's the other frustration that like permeates throughout the film because, you know, there's a scene with Ma when she's talking about Bessie and she's like, I don't care. Like, you know, she can do whatever she wants. Like, I'm going to do me. But, you know, Ma clearly does need success. You know, that's why she signs the release uh, for them to can like make print print the records, you know, like she she does know. It, I feel like she, Viola Davis plays her so fantastically, 
And I feel like in Viola's portrayal of her, you know, I felt really sad for Ma, you know, because it's like, I felt sad for both Ma and Levy, even though maybe that's not, maybe they don't, maybe in different ways people wouldn't feel sad for them, but I, I felt sad for them because they did need success, you know, like Ma knew she needed success um, and Levy knew he needed success. And this success for them was, you know, Ma had built her, her, her empire, um, but she still needed it. You know what I mean? Like that was, she, she couldn't just walk away from, if she was so sick and tired of everyone, she couldn't walk away. She still needed this. She still needed to have, uh, she still needed the job. She still needed to print records and Levy needed to break out. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, it is, it is, it is unfortunate, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, Levy ultimately was right that these songs would have been successful. You know what I mean? Yeah. So let's break the fourth wall a little bit. Sure. Obviously, Levy's character is incredibly important for a number of reasons. Uh, it's it's more than likely that, that uh, you know, the portrayal will receive a an Oscar nomination. Yeah. Um, I, I watched the 30-minute, um, uh, I guess, extra after the fact that featured, you know, Denzel and the director uh, and a few other folks talking about it, it. Viola. Yeah. Yeah. How, how does Chad's passing affect the marketing of this film for Netflix? You know, honestly, I think, I think the marketing team, because the marketing team is separate, but my, my instinct is that, you know, I, I don't I, I, I think they're gonna just roll out the film as if they would have roll, rolled out the film. I think you know the pandemic obviously frustrated a lot of marketing plans probably across the entire slate. you know there's a lot of there's a lot of um, things in, from a marketing perspective I'm sure they would have loved to take advantage of interviews and whatnot. But I think because the film is you know streaming in everyone's home, you know I, I, I suspect that, you know the the at least the digital plan is still going forth uh, as was expected. I, I think one of the things that I really appreciate about Netflix is that you know we Netflix likes to pride itself on being extremely talent friendly. Um, I don't I don't know. <clears throat> I know you are definitely probably aware of uh, the Netflix decision to take down the Chappelle Show at absolutely at Dave Chappelle's request. And so I think what I really do admire about Netflix is that, you know, the, the powers that be at the company are extremely respectful about the talent that are involved in Netflix films. So I don't think, you know, I certainly have not seen anything where I think, you know, I, I, I let me say, I wouldn't, I, I haven't seen anything that I think anyone would ever say Netflix is attempting to capitalize off Chadwick's death. Uh, or like promote that angle of it. I think, you know, people, Netflix, you know, at least as a consumer, Netflix seems to, you know, just want to release this film and let people find Chad's uh, swan song in it by themselves. And I feel like that's, you know, that's been my reaction to it is that like, you know, I, I haven't felt like the marketing, you know, tries to focus overly on Chadwick. It, it focuses on him, an appropriate relation to the film. Um, and I think when you do, when you do watch the film, it's, it's his performance. It, it, you know, it's sad because you're never get, we're never going to see another one of his performances, but it's, it's a hell of a note to go out on. 
Yeah, uh, it, I'll, I'll close this this portion uh, on, with two thoughts. Number one, there's a monologue that he has where, okay. you know, he's talking about God and everything. And in that in that moment, it, it's in hindsight, I guess, it, it's hard not to feel that he's breaking character a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it seems as though he really perhaps means what he's saying about being forsaken. Um, or at least he has the awareness that if something goes wrong, that will be remembered that way. I, right. I felt that so much. And I felt, you know, it's funny that his, two of his last films, I think his last two films were Netflix films, right? So you have Spikes to Five Bloods, and then you have Mulaney. Yep. And his character in both of them, so he plays like in The uh, Five Bloods, he plays this character that, you know, died when he was um, younger or, and then his like, his war buddies go back to Vietnam to try to avenge his death and like find the gold and et cetera. But there's some, even in the five bloods, there's like this really touching scene between Delroy's character and Chad's character where it's clear that, you know, Chad's character is ascending to heaven and, you know, Delroy's character is like apologizing to Chad and, you know, Chad's character is like, it's all right. It's all right. You know, comforting the people that Chad's character is leaving behind. And then you go to Ma Rainey and you get the, the frustration from being abandoned by God. And I think, you know, to me, those two things are just, you know, and it's crazy because it's like those two things for someone who knew the battle they were going through, you know, and who 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 may have not voiced that to the cast or to, you know, the crew, but he knew it. And now watching those films with that insight and, you know, if these were the two last roles that he chose or that he knew these were going to be his image, you know, I, I think that just gives us a lot to meditate on, you know, and I, I certainly his death you know, impacted me incredibly only behind Kobe Bryant's. And, you know, I just think his entire, Chad's entire filmography, like the, not only the characters that he was choosing, Black Panther, Third Good, Jackie Robinson, but it's like the momentum at which he was working. And then for the last two characters to be very poignant reflection on faith, death, and like, you know, odds and luck. I just think it was, I, I, for the life of me, I do not think that was accidental or unintentional. I, I, I would, yeah, I would agree with you there. Yeah. 100%. There, there's also another point that I've found. I guess it's not nearly as poignant, but I'm watching the extras again. Uh, I think it's a 28 minute, 28 minute uh, short and it's great. And one of the one of the most, I guess, um, heart wrenching moments for me was just B roll. And in the B roll, you're 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 seeing Chadwick in the background, laughing and smiling with Denzel. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it's just like, man, he's stage four. He's likely terminal. This is less than less than a year before he's dead, right? Because mm -hmm. I I want to say that filming wrapped in 2019 correct yeah i think it's right and uh here he is like smiling wide not for the camera but for 
for the sake of his own conversation. Um, and that's, that's going to stick with me for quite some time. I wanted to talk to you about the, the industry as a whole. Um, tell me more about your Twitter process. Yeah. You have one of the most abstract approaches to Twitter that I know of. Like, I, I, I don't understand how your mind works. I barely understand either. But here's, but here's what I do believe, right? And here's, so I, I have two tenets, not to steal a word from my, my, my guy, Christopher Nolan, but I do have like these two core beliefs. And one is like, you have to tell the universe where to find you, you know? And then the second one is that people will mirror your passion, you know? And so the first one is like, no matter what you're interested in, you know, you really do, if you, if you want to attract that to you, you do have to um, speak about it out loud in public, in front of people, you know? And so uh, about three years ago, I made a conscious decision and I said to myself, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Everyone in my life has to know that I'm obsessed with film. I was, I was always obsessed with film, but like it was only, it would only happen in these moments of like at a bar and we'd start talking about movies and people like, Oh, wow, you know a lot about movies. So I was like, I'm going to use Twitter to make sure everybody knows I'm obsessed about film. I'm going to talk about it all the time. I'm going to like really dive into it. Um, I'm going to like every single day, I'm going to say something about film. And so what that's going to do is that if anyone ever knows of an opportunity or thinks of something to do with film and which, which, and and it's great because it happens all the time now, but if anyone ever thinks about film, their second thought is they're going to think about me. You know what I mean? And so, interesting. and so I was just like, well, I, I mean, you more than anyone might know this, but I remember reading this one, uh, it was, it was on like how uh, podcasts are successful. And it was talking about how, like the number one thing, or one of the most critical things for a podcast to be successful was it wasn't like co-host. It wasn't sound design. It was like frequency. It was like, how frequently can you release an episode? You know what I mean? And so like, for me, I just took that, I took that approach. I was like, I am frequent as frequently as possible going to just keep talking passionately about film really quickly. The other thing, the other tenet was like people mirror passion. And I've, I've, cause I've noticed this ever since I was a kid. If I saw a janitor who was like, and I'm not just talking about did a good job. I'm saying like, if there was a janitor who like they, the way that they were wiping was really meticulous and was you know, really intense and focused, I couldn't stop myself from watching them. You know what I mean? And so I feel like that that happens in any area. If you if you show me a I've seen videos or I've been to barbershops where the barber isn't just good, but they you they take like exceptional pride. They, you know, you can see it in their eyes, their concentration, like they just are obsessed with this thing. And I think you know, whenever I see it, whenever I see someone extremely passionate, it's almost like it's almost like I get infected by that. And so just trying to like hack Twitter's virality uh, mechanism to like start infecting people with a passion for film. 
by just being like super excited about it and like talking about it with great detail and passion. Those, those were the two approaches that I, I took. So you actually mentioned something that was really sort of critical to 2PM's thesis. Yeah. Uh, we, we have a number of things that I probably paired off quite a bit. And one of those things is the fact that the best creators are prolific. Yes. Right. And so when you talked about the frequency of pumping out podcasts, uh, listen, quality will always matter. Yeah. But the the core tenet, to your point, uh, sorry, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sorry because I disagree with his HBO Max stance. <laughs> but that's a different. We'll have we'll have that conversation in a minute. Um. Uh, if you can find a way to produce frequently, you are more likely to be discovered. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I there's a guy who you should probably meet. Um, I'm sure you've crossed paths on Twitter. Uh, David Peril is a great writer. He's young. He's probably 25, 26 now. He's done a wonderful job of building a sizable audience by being prolific. He, I met him when he was at 620, 600 Twitter followers. I think he's at like 140, 150 now. Jesus. Just insane. And it's all because he cares so much about writing. So in, in, in some ways, you're doing the same thing for film. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's, you know, I, I just, I, I really, and I also think like we're in a, we're in a day and age in terms of social where like, you know, I do believe quality is really, really important, but it's also like, you know, people, like if people are tuned into you, you know, I think people are really interested in like, can you keep doing it over and over? So like, I, I, I mean, I think you've probably seen, but I make these like little videos on Instagram. They're just like these one minute little movies that I edit to sound and whatnot. And it's like, they have gotten, they've like, that has created so many wild contacts for me and they're not heavily watched. Right. But it's like, I like, I'm able, and, and it's exactly what you're doing with 2PM. If someone can see that you can do something consistently over and over and over and over and over again. I truly, truly believe like that, like be, that, like separates you from the market. You know what I mean? Because it's just like you have like, be, like there's I'm, I'm, I'm rambling, but I'm going to tell you this one quick story about this. The screenwriter, his name's Matt Thomason. He's the he's the new screenwriter. He did a he wrote Project Power, which is on Netflix. He's on. Twitter. Absolutely. He wrote Twitter and one of the things he said, and he, he's the new uh, co-writer for the upcoming Batman, Matt Reeves movie, right? And so one thing he said that I just like literally dropped my jaw was that a lot, like maybe five or so, six years ago, he decided to write uh, 10 screenplays a year. Now for context, I think most uh, screenwriters or anyone who would call themselves a screenwriters, if they wrote two a year, three a year, they would be like completely satisfied. But, you know, Matt was like, I, I set a, a, a 10 a year screenplay target for myself that I've consistently hit. And, you know, he's like, he's like, to be quite honest, like a lot of them are not good, but, you know, his ability to guarantee 10 screenplays a year and to say, you know, each screenplay has a three act structure. It has some interesting characters some interesting, you know, movement, some interesting ideas. That to me is such a weapon. And all these people and all these screenwriter blogs that I 
check out sometimes they're all baffled at how he how this like you know he because he doesn't have a lot of quote-unquote imdb credits they're baffled how he got to be the co-writer on the batman how he got this netflix film on project power you know jamie fox and it's a really big and good film um but i'm like as soon as i read that i was like oh that's how he's he's viciously frequent and that to me cannot be ever beaten you know what i mean like you are not going to beat someone who is just viciously viciously frequent with fairly good quality it's just like it's just not gonna happen you know what i mean I, I absolutely do know what you mean. Um, and these are just prescient points that I hope people take take them and run with them. Um, really fascinating stuff. I wanted to mention one more thing about your Twitter following because I, I want to make sure that this is right. But you do a really good job of producing original content. Yeah. So tell me about how your short clips work. Like how do you author those? Yeah. So you know what? It's like I was I was like I love Twitter. And, but I had all of these ideas that were really interesting tweet threads, Twitter threads, and were interesting points. And I was like, I feel like there's a way to express these cinematically, you know, like I had, I had this one Twitter thread that went pretty viral and it was talking about how I thought, you know, there was a connection between uh, black cowboys and you know the biker black uh, bikers and um, the you know the kids who are go, uh, you know are in New York City and they 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 swarm and they descend upon New York City and all their little uh, their bikes and then you know the Philly kids in Philly and Baltimore were dirt bikes. I was like, there's this like connection between all of this sense of riding and being liberated and you know kind of having going into the wind. And you know it went it was longer and probably more eloquent than that, but it went viral. And, you know, but, and, you know, it's not just then, but also before that, I was just like, you know, there's so many good ideas that I feel and I think about, I wish I could just express them cinematically. And so I just came up with this idea of like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to find, I'm going to have these ideas and I'm just going to find the clips that, you know, cause I watch movies, I watch a movie if I if I if I'm not watching movie every day, I watch like six movies a week. So I'm going to take all these references I know. I'm going to find really great music, and I'm going to edit them to make anyone who watches these one minute clip all that's all I'm asking for for your time. You know, I'm going to make you feel this idea, and maybe you won't be able to get it perfectly because you know I didn't write it out in a Twitter thread. But you're gonna feel, oh wow, I see visually the connections that you're making, um, and so that was that was the idea. And like the coolest of coolest directors, you know, well-known directors have like reached out to me about it, and you know, re- people I really admire have reached out to me about them. And again, they're not like the ones on my Instagram; they're not hugely viral. But I just so much believe that. Like I was telling someone today, the difference between one person watching your content and a million people watching your content, it's that a million people are are one person times a million. So I just like really believe that even if it's like five people watching your content, it doesn't matter. It's like, you know, really, really perform for those five people because, you know, 
once those a million people come, because you've been able to like excellently, excellently serve those five people, you know how to do it to the to the to the the rest of those people. In degree. Yeah, you right. know how to do it already. So it's like it's just getting over the fear of performing in front of all those people, but you already know you you already have the goods. And so that's just been that's just been my journey on Instagram on the on the Instagram story front. And editing is something that I just have fell in love with, quite frankly. You know, I tell people, you know, if if you know, getting clay is um it's you know it it's a really hard process to make clay, but at some point you actually have to put your 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 clay bowl or your clay pot together. And that to me is what editing is. It's like you have all of these, you have all of this clay, you have all of the directing, the cinematography, the actors acting, the visuals, you have all of that, the raw materials of clay. But in terms of the actual construction of film, the actual filmmaking of film, it doesn't come until you're editing, until you're actually putting stuff together. And so I've just I've just fallen in extreme love with editing for sure. That's really fascinating, man. Oh my God. Um, so listen, I you you've taken us through the progress, the procession, I guess you could say. Yeah. You've gone from purely corporate guy to purely corporate guy that's also living his passion through film. Yep. Um you are a cog in the wheel of the big business of film. Yep. But you're also working for a streaming company. Yep. Where do you fall in the argument between the Christopher Nolan acolytes yep. and those of us who believe that Hollywood should adopt uh, streaming for big budget Hollywood premieres? <sighs> yeah, I hate giving the lawyer answer of it depends, but you know, I it's funny because I love Christopher Nolan. And I love Netflix. I think that, you know, streaming is the future. Like almost, that's not even, that's not even really in conversation for me anymore. And that's, you know, part of the reason why I joined Netflix um, because it just, you know, streaming, I think Disney said something like they, you know, they expect to be over 200 million subscribers in very short time, like a, a two years or something. Um, and so, I mean, streaming is the future, you know, it, it just seems clear to me. Um, I do think there is something extremely, extremely special about the theatrical experience. I do like, I, I, there's certain films you have to know which film that is, but there's certain films that I really do think are operatic, you know, it's like, yeah, I could watch the opera at home but I kind of really want to go to the opera. Like I, that's what I want to do. Um, and so I do think there's some films I would like, for example, his house was a film I was mentioning. I'm so glad we worked on that film. I'm so glad we have that film. I do think though, that if it had a theatrical moment and it, you know, you saw it in community with people, I do think Remy Weeks, who was the incredible, incredible director. I do think he would become more famous, be more famous now. You know what I mean? I do think that they're for streaming, the, the thing, and I'm, I'm, I think Nolan is probably very aware of this. When something, when something becomes a streaming event, it kind of, and you know, Netflix is a really good job of doing this. And I support Netflix for doing this. 
you know, when something is a streaming movie, you kind of see it as, you know, this was made by Netflix. And, you know, when you're in a theater, I do think you see it as the creation of the director. Um, and maybe in some cases you might say, oh, this is the creation of like A24 or something. But I think, you know, you go to, when you saw Get Out in the theaters, you were like, who directed this? Jordan ah, Peele. Jordan Peele. Ah. Oh my yeah. God, this was incredible. Or not, and not just like, oh, this is a Disney Plus movie. Like, go watch it on Disney Plus. This was great. Um, so I do, I completely agree that streaming is the future. Streaming is inevitable. The theater, the theatrical market is going to get very small, but I do, do hope that, you know, it's still retained for, for certain films, how you pick those films, uh, TBD, you know? Yeah. So I want to be clear and I've said this on Twitter. Uh, there will always be movie theaters. Yeah. Right. But to your point about watching something that's operatic. Yeah. Do you watch that that operatic performance from the gooey seats of an AMC theater while eating chicken fingers? <laughs> yeah. I mean, some, to be clear, some opera houses, i.e. some movie theaters are absolute trash and absolutely disgusting. And, you know, hopefully they're taking this this existential moment to like really reevaluate the the quality of you know the consistency of quality in all of their um, theaters but there, you know there are there are some cinemas that I was going to in uh, in New York that were really 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 great but again like you know I think the point that you're getting at is like you know not all theaters are created equal there's certainly some people who are, you know, North Carolina or whatever, and their movie theater hasn't been updated in ages. And so they're like, you know, well, why the hell would I go to? Let, yeah, go ahead. Let me be clear about that. I'm not talking about the, the luxury of a theater itself. What I am saying, though, is that the theater industry, the, the movie exhibition industry has run parallel with the retail industry. Yeah. Right. So think about it like this. This is where our worlds sort of interact, yep. intersect. We have too many malls. We have too many specialty retailers. Yep. The specialty retailers are going bankrupt. They're not paying rent. The mall owners are struggling because they don't have as many leases as they had the year before. Yep. Right? Okay. Um, we had too many stores for not enough consumers. Yep. Just like for movie theaters, we have too many movie theaters with lagging interest in going to that theater. So over the years, you've seen movie theaters grow in number, but also you've seen ticket prices uh, outpace inflation yeah. because fewer people are actually going to the theater. So now for a movie theater to make money, they can't just sell popcorn and M&Ms. You're talking about $12 Jack Daniel drinks and $18 chicken fingers to, you know, serve to your seat to make up that difference because fewer people... Are going to the theater yeah i think what i think that's uh, absolutely right like i think they do yeah someone said someone said it's no longer like a movie theater it's like a restaurant with uh a movie option you know what i mean like i think i think that's exactly right for sure so so going back to like the purists like christopher nolan i think he's i think he is he is representative of a type of professional that i've seen quite a bit in my in my industry the the, the laggard 
the one that's holding on for dear life. He's like the the the, the, the department store owner that 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 thinks that we're always only going to shop at department stores, right? Um, movie theaters have a rightful place in America. We need we just need about seventy percent fewer of them, because when you go to that theater, when you go there, you want an operatic experience. You don't want a cooker cookie cutter experience where um, you feel like, as you said, a restaurant with a screen. Yeah. Right. That can't be what Nolan believes cinema to be. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and I think you know when people think of movie theaters i only say this because i did go to a movie theater uh when visiting family in a very rural part of uh north carolina and i was i was shocked by you know how um you know i i what i'm saying is that like i think when people think of movie theaters they do think of like only the like prestige movie theaters in in la and new york but i yeah i do agree i mean i do think that there probably will end up being far less movie theaters and the ones that remain will be operatic and high quality. The concern I have, and this is why, I mean, I think this is your area of expertise. The, the unfortunate, the thing I would hate to see happen. And I don't know, I really do not know the economics of how this gets figured out, but I would hate to see that only big metropolitan areas have the operatic movie houses and like no one else in the country that can't sustain huge, 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 huge audiences for every single movie have them. You know what I mean? So I, well, I think you're right though, but I just don't know how it works. Well, well, let's, let's clarify this because I don't listen. I love independent movie theaters yeah. in town in Columbus, Ohio, which is not the traditional metropolitan area. Yeah. Right. I, I prefer to go to the smaller movie houses. Yeah. The ones where, they're not owned by Cinemark or AMC. Yep. Um, I think at the best malls, you're still going to have those AMC or Cinemark theaters. Mm. And for the vast majority of them, they're going to be quality experiences, right? But I would love to get to a point where it was closer to 50-50 between independent movie houses, you know, the Alamo draft houses, so on and so forth, uh, between them and the chain theaters that are pumping out chicken fingers to chew on during the climaxes of Christopher Nolan's films. <laughs> yeah, no. Right? No, I'm, like, like, I, I, like I, I just think it's so hypocritical that he's so concerned about the, the, the standard and the, I guess, the practice of cinema when it's, it's become sort of a, a circus. Yeah, and I think, I think that a line... You know, I, I, think, I think if he... Again, I'm the biggest Nolan fan. I think you know you're you're right to point out the dwindling quality of movie theaters. I just I wish I don't know what AMC and Lowe's and those folks need to do to up it. You know what I mean? Or like, how do you up it when the margins are very small? Uh, that's a great question. It, it comes down to the same problem that retail has as a whole, and that is they have too much of a footprint. Mm too big of a footprint, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're, they are stretched too thin. They are dependent on the mega blockbusters by Marvel and Disney and so on and so forth to float them, right? They're straddled in debt and they don't know what to do yeah. beyond continue on, right? And so 
like like you're like you're noticing, just like department stores, a lot of these companies could make it six to eight months without filing for bankruptcy or getting very close. Yep. Well, that's that's a sign that something is wrong with the model. Yep. Right. Um, it's gonna it, we're gonna chop that number down by fifty percent, which is frankly what's going to happen to malls anyway. AMC is still going to exist, but with a much smaller footprint. Cinemark is still probably going to exist, but with a much smaller footprint. I think that we're going to get to the point where we're going to have luxury independent theater houses pop up around the country because people will get tired of watching movies in their home. For sure. And they're, go- and they're going to want like a high-end experience. The types of experiences that you find in Santa Monica or Laguna Beach or, or, or New York, there's probably a few in Miami, right? Yeah. Those types of places will become more prevalent throughout the country. Yeah, and I th- right. Yeah, and I do think once that happens, I think directors may become. You might see less agita around the collapse of the day and date window. Like if they feel like L- L.A. has you know all of these cool independent theaters, and you can see it, and you know if you really really want to see it on um, uh, on the big screen, you can. You know, I think I think what they're responding to is a fear that like no one's going to be like the an existential fear for the theaters that every single movie theater is going to collapse. You know what I mean? I think that. Yes. I think that's what they're responding to. Uh, so here's an interesting last paragraph from AV Club about AMC. Yeah. And we'll we'll, we'll begin to wrap this up because I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I can't wait for people to hear it. Um, as of last month. 404 of AMC's 594 U.S. theaters are open and operating at reduced capacity. Attendance has dropped 92% since this time last year, which is great for public health, bad for business. Barring federal government intervention, AMC theaters is going away. The title of this essay or this report by AV Club is, it's official, AMC theaters says it's going to go broke in January. Jesus. So... So given that we are not going to be back to normal until what, this summer? If that, yeah. Do you really suspect that the Christopher Nolan acolytes, the, the folks that believe exactly what he believes, are going to push back this slate of films? Do you think it's better to push back this slate of films another year rather than sort of presenting a, the HBO Max option for a lot of Warner Brothers films and hopefully more? I mean, I th- um, yeah, I think I think it's like for me the way that I see it is like the the remote work situation, which is like so many companies before COVID nineteen, like were so resistant and so reluctant to the idea that people should be able to work home, work from home whenever they want, and now COVID nineteen came, and it kind of like you know just said I don't care what y'all are talking about. Everyone is working from home seven days a week, like you know three sixty five. And, you know, I think it's interesting to me that now we're at a place where people are like, not only when are we going to go back, but if we're going to go back, like, do we need all these huge, we're still running as a company. Do we really need all of this uh, space, office space for people if we can, you know, say half or or three fourths of our people can just work from home if it's been fine as it is. I say that to say, um, I think once all of these films truly get pushed out of 2021 and, you know, 80% of people who like movies become for a year, like you got to think how long a year is. We're not even done 
with 2020 yet. A year is so long. When people become so accustomed to watching the latest blockbuster on their home, do do I really think you can put that toothpaste back in the bottle and get those 80% of people who have just who have become so accustomed to seeing the Matrix or you know, Wonder Woman or whatever it is on the day it releases from the comfort of their home, you know, because it's not just people like me who, you know, are single and have, you know, no kids. It's people who have families and they're like, you know, wrangling these kids is to go see the latest release, to go to like this, you know, not up to par movie theater. That's, that's, that wasn't the dream uh, to begin with. So now you're going to tell those people in 2022 to come back. I just, I just don't buy that. I don't buy that Warner Brothers actually thinks they're going back to normal in 2022. I think that's what they're telling everyone just to not cause, you know, Armageddon right now. But I think after 2021 and people have spent 12 months seeing great movies from their couch, no way are they going to go back. Like, I just don't, I just don't buy it. I think that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. Uh, because I because I agree with you, and and I could talk about that for another hour, but we won't, because uh, we both have better things to do. <laughs> but um, listen, it's it's been a pleasure, Kyle. Uh, I think you're one of the most creative operators out there. I hope that more people know who you are and begin to follow you on Twitter. Can you give everyone your handle so that they can look at your work in real time? Yes, it's K Y A L. B-R. That stands for Kyle Alex Brett. So it's K-Y-A-L-B-R. And I just want to say, I know everyone who's listening to this follows, follows you, but honestly, bro, you're like, your tenacity, you're like the, the quality of your content, like I'm just always impressed by it. Like I, I feel like you have a very specific aesthetic to the way that you brand your, your tweets and like everything I see from you. And I just, I, I really bang with it the long way. So, you know, obviously, and I, when, you, when you, when you told me to come on here, I was like, yeah, absolutely. Man, Kyle, that means the world to me, man. I, I think you're, I think you're a great catch and I, I can't wait to, to let people hear this because they're, they're going to be fascinated. Appreciate you, bro.